to be in the hands of God than in your own hands. And so uh, as we look at, at, at these that commit themselves to going wherever God calls them, let it be inspirational to all of us that we would be willing to go and do whatever God calls us to do. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians. Today we're in chapter 7. Uh, there's a sermon-based study that goes through the entire chapter. This is a great chapter. There's a lot of information in chapter 7. Uh, if, you, if you're married, if you plan to get married, if you're single and plan to stay single, uh, if you've been divorced, uh, all of these issues are prevalent in this chapter. All these issues are dealt with. This is a great chapter to get information on what is God saying to us about these issues. So I would encourage you uh, to read through this chapter this week. Do the sermon-based study. We do that on Tuesday in, our, in, in the men's group. You can do that in a group or alone, but it's really helpful. We can't go verse by verse. We would ne- you'd be here for four hours. You probably wouldn't come back if I did that. So uh, we focus on uh, one part of it and say, what did God are you saying to us here? But I would encourage you to take the whole chapter and read it and, and to really study it and allow God to speak to wherever you are in life. And I think this chapter pretty much touches wherever we are or wherever we're going in life. And a lot of the real issues of life, relationships, uh, how we make decisions, how we make choices. And uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was studying this chapter and, and considering where is God leading us in chapter seven, it was a a popular saying about 10, 15 years ago, and maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. I was working in youth ministry, so I had heard it quite a bit. It's the saying FOMO. Has anyone heard FOMO before? Raise your hand if you've heard FOMO, because I want to know who's hip in here. All right. Uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. And the idea is, is that you don't want to sleep, you don't want to do anything because you don't want to miss out. You don't want to miss out on the fun, right? You don't want to miss out on the good times in life. You don't want to miss out on all the things that everyone seems to be having such a good time in. And unfortunately, uh, this principle deals more with partying in life and, and pursuing that lifestyle. And, uh, and so that's kind of where it was birthed out of. And there's this idea that, you know, you watch, uh, if you look at the picture here, you have all the social media and you look, you say, man, they got to go there. They got to do that. Their life looks perfect. They look like they have no problems. They look like their life is so wonderful. And my life seems so tough and miserable. How come they get all that fun stuff? I'm missing out. And that there's a fear that people have that somehow they're, they're missing out on something um, that's worthwhile and valuable in life. I had a, a friend who actually was a youth pastor, and he said, I didn't give my life to Jesus till I was in my late 20s. And I said, well, why did you wait so long? Hadn't you heard the gospel? He said, yeah, I heard the gospel. I heard that Jesus died on the cross, and he was dead and for three days, and then he rose again, and he paid for my sin. And if I confess and believe him, I would be saved. I understood that, and I even believed that to be true, but I, I didn't receive Christ as my Savior because I didn't want to miss the fun life had to offer. And I always told myself, well, I'll do that later in life. I'll deal with that later in life. And, and we talked about how destructive that approach to life is. Number one, you don't know how long you have. So taking that risk is a horrible risk to take. But second, you actually miss out on what God has for you. And that's so much better than what the world has for you. And this is kind of the upside down uh, truth we have to tell the world because we're coming to the world saying, look, actually the opposite of what you're saying is true. Actually, the way God has created it is this way. And this is where life is found. And this is where joy is found. This is where satisfaction is found. This is where peace is found. And it really is only found in one person, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at this idea of the fear of missing out, 
Um, I, I, I feel, when I was young, man, this was such a big part of my life. I didn't want to miss out. I didn't want to miss what everyone else got to do. I didn't, I didn't want to be left out. And, and I think for many of us, wherever you are in your story of life, you can feel that way, right? We can feel this, this tension of missing out on something. And it, it took me to a, a story I once heard that I think was a really profound story. It was helpful for me to kind of make a bigger picture of this, of this topic. And it's about a man named Al-Hafid. He lived in South Central India. Al-Hafid was a farmer. He was well-established. He had three meals a day. He had no stress in his life necessarily, no major problems, had a healthy family, healthy life. Things were going really well. Like there wasn't major issues in Al's life until one day there was a Buddhist priest who came into town. And the Buddhist priest went to Al and said, Al, do you know about diamonds? Have you heard about diamonds? And he said, no, what are diamonds? He said, they're these very valuable rocks, and if you find them, they make you extraordinarily rich. And Al's interest was perked. He said, wait, what? A rock, like in the ground, you find a rock, and you can sell it, and if you own it, you have lots of money? This, this, this is a true thing? And the priest said, yes, if you find these diamonds, and, and people think there may be some close to here, he was telling them different places you might wanna look, and so Al got diamond fever, so bad that he sold his farm, he sold everything he had, and he decided that he was gonna find diamonds, become uh, immensely wealthy, and live in pleasure the rest of his life. And so uh, he took uh, this money, he sold everything he had, and for about the next 30 years of his life, he traveled wherever he could travel to look for diamonds. Well, he had sold his property to a, an individual who uh, had camels. And one day that individual was, was watering his camels. He took him up to a brook. And as he was at the brook and the camel was drinking, he looked down and there he saw something shimmering in the water on the property that he had just bought. And he picked it up. He said, oh, this is pretty. This is a pretty rock. He took it to his house and he mounted it on the wall. A few weeks later, that same uh, priest came back to town and he visited this gentleman. He looked on the wall and he said, do you realize what you have on your wall? That is a diamond. He said, well, what's a diamond? He says, it's a rock that's worth lots and lots of money if you sell it. And so uh, they began to dig and they found out that this was a very diamond-rich area where this gentleman lived. And actually today, uh, if you look it up, this is a real place. Um, it, this is, he discovered the Galconda diamond mine. This picture you have here is the Hope Diamond. How many of you have heard of the Hope Diamond? The Hope Diamond was found on this site. All right. Now, Al, he had spent, he was totally broke. And he was close to death. He was very old. He had run out all of his energy, all of his money, had no friends, miserable as you can get. He said, I'm going to return home and I'm going to die back where I grew up. He got back to his home and he saw this giant mansion where his house used to be. And he said, what happened? What happened? And they told him that they found diamonds on your property. And he died miserably. Because his entire life, once he heard of this idea of diamonds, he began to look for them without realizing they had been right under his feet the entire time. When I heard this story, I couldn't help but think of this book right here. It's called The Bible. It's 66 books written over 1,400 years by 40 different authors. 
that are ranging from kings to shepherds to fishermen. Uh, it claims to be the word of God that tells us where we came from, why we're here, where we're going. And it, it gives us the truth of life. It gives us purpose and meaning. It gives me a reason to live uh, because God declares that while I was an enemy of his in sin, he died for me on the cross, giving me an eternal hope and future. This is greater than a diamond. Diamonds can buy me stuff and stuff can own me, right? Jesus died to set me free from the ownership of stuff. He died to give us eternal life and not just eternal life, but abundant life here that we would know why we're here. We'll know how to invest our life and our time and our energy. And so as we look at this, the, let's be honest, the distractions of life. How many diamonds are we told about are out there? How many things can we invest our entire life in and miss the truth of who God is? And even in church, this is the amazing thing to me. We're gathered here talking about eternal things. We're gathered here talking about things that are going to go on forever and ever. We're talking about the God who created this immense universe. We're talking about the God who formed you, knows more about you than you know about yourself. We're talking about big stuff here. And yet many people will come to places like this and be bored and fall asleep and look forward to the football game and look forward to lunch and look forward to paying their bills, right? Maybe not look forward to that. But they'll be thinking about that, right? That'll be a distraction. What will be the distractions today? My bad relationships, my bad money situation, uh, my bad neighborhood, my bad job. These things get ownership on our minds and our thoughts when we're talking about eternity, when we're talking about stuff that's so immense and so amazing and so wonderful. And I don't want us to be distracted that when we worship the true God, that we don't worship him distracted by very temporary small things. And I believe if you read uh, this chapter, we're going to look at it here in a minute. The big emphasis of, of Paul is, yes, relationships are great. And, and yes, your job might be great. And yes, there's a lot of things in life to consider. But if you miss why you're here, if you miss that you've been saved by grace and now you're to have your faith that will lead you to good works. If you miss all of that, if you get distracted so easily, you're going to miss the very thing God has for you. And we should all have a fear of missing out on that. If we have FOMO, it's because we don't want to miss what God has for us. We don't want to miss the beauty and wonder God has in store for our lives. And not just for us, but for everyone we know. And so we're going we're gonna to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 together. And before we go there, the question is, what does God want us to focus our lives on? What does he want us to put our focus on as we look to him? And so as we go to his word, let's pray together and ask him to speak to us. Father God, you are awesome. You are worthy. Uh, you're better than diamonds. You're better than gold. Uh, Lord, you give eternal life. You give living water. You are the bread of life. When we read your words, we're nourished spiritually. And so, Lord, I pray in this moment and as we look at your word that, Lord, it would uh, it would dive deep into our spirit that we would grow and mature, that we would have a new and refreshed love for you, uh, Lord, that we would be renewed in you and that our love would grow even deeper today and our desire to serve you and to serve others uh, would just expand. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for those who died so that we could do this freely. We thank you for those who you used to write these words through your spirit for us. We thank you for their obedience so that we could now listen and obey. Lord, help us uh, not to resist, but to embrace your words as we look at them now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
two contextual points before we go to the, the, the verses here. First, um, Corinth was known for having a variety of experiences to spend your time on. Corinth was a port city. It had two ports in it. And so that made it a very important area. So there was a lot of wealth there. And because of that wealth, it brought a, a lot of um, entertainment. It brought a lot of opportunities. It was the Las Vegas, the Los Angeles, the Miami of its time. It was a place you could go to and uh, your money wouldn't go very far, but you could do a lot of interesting things. You could spend a lot of time distracted by a lot of different things. And so Corinth, the people that lived there understood this idea of being distracted. They understood the idea of the appeal of the world, how they can focus so much of their life, maybe on their profession, maybe on their relationships, maybe on their finances, maybe on their pleasures, maybe on their toys. Whatever it is, there's a shiny object that's put out in front of us to pursue, and it will take our focus off of where our focus should be. And so the context here is that we can relate to them because we're in, this, we're in Daytona, we're Volusia, we're Port Orange. This has the same situation as them. There's a lot of shiny objects around us that look like, wow, if I, if I follow that, it'll make me happy, Right? And so here, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We're going to look first at, at verse 17. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 17 says this. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord has what? Assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. It's interesting that Paul has to address this idea that not only is he, this is, he adds a little bit more um, emphasis by saying, I commanded in all the churches. He's making a command. Typically, Paul doesn't do this. Typically, he gives suggestions. Typically, he says, here's the way that the Lord has revealed. Here he says, I'm commanding the churches. And what is he commanding? Um, that each one of us listen to the call of God in our life, and we do the thing that God calls us to do, and we don't try uh, to follow the calling of someone else. We don't try to follow the object that someone else is following. We follow the calling that God gives us in our lives. See, the only way the church is going to function properly is when we recognize that we were uniquely shaped to be here and to be part of this body and be part of this family. And that means everyone in this room, uh, it's not by chance that we're here right now. God calls us together and he calls us by name. And he says, all that stuff that happened in your life, I allowed it on purpose so that you could live out your purpose. All the gifts, all the passions, all uh, the experiences you've ever had in your life, they're intentional not to be wasted. I didn't allow that to happen so you could just say, well, woe is me or hooray for me. He gave them so that you could glorify him and actually impact the world around you with good and light and salt. And so he's saying, look, God calls you. He says, I want to be your savior. I want to be your Lord. Confess and believe in me and then follow where I lead you. And when I lead you, keep your focus on me and the calling I'm giving you specifically. Maybe he's calling you to Pakistan. Maybe he's calling you to your job. Maybe he's calling you to help out in the food pantry. Maybe he's calling you to be on mission in Daytona. I don't know, but I do know that each one of us, if we're his child, he gifts us and he calls us. And you all have a calling. If you know the Lord, you heard the initial calling, which is repent and believe that you may be saved. What did Jesus say as he walked by his fishermen, disciples? He said, come, follow me. It was a calling into a life lived for the Lord. 
And today, if you haven't heard that calling, that's the first thing that needs to happen. If you're wondering what life's all about, it starts with hearing the calling of God in your life, that you need to be saved. He says that he knocks on the heart of our door. Anyone who will open it, he will come and dwell within you. He will be your God and he will Lord, help be Lord in your life. But it has to be a decision that we make. And I think that it's interesting here in this whole chapter where he deals with so many different topics. He says, look, you're an individual that God made individually for a purpose. And that you are not a mistake. Mom and dads make mistakes. God never does. You are made on purpose with a purpose. Your life matters. Your life has value. And the only way it will not is if you choose to deny God's work in your life. The only way your life will not live out to its purpose is if you say, no, God, I don't want you to use my life for your purposes. And so our focus, do you see how the focus has to be clear? The focus can't be distracted. Well, I have to be stable. I have to be financially set. I have to get my career on the right path. I have to live into the expectations of people in my life. This and that. That is not the focus of the Lord. That is the focus of the world. That is the focus of the flesh. Those things are not bad in themselves, only when they escalate themselves to being the most important thing in your life. When all you ever think about is how is this person gonna think about this or how will this be received or what will I experience or what, what, what success will I find? If that is at the core of your motives, then the focus is not the calling of God in your life. The focus is not has God called you and, and set you apart for his purposes. And so we see that there's a clear uh, placement that God has given us a specific and unique calling. Every single one of us. Your story is different than my story. But it all connects to his story, which is his story, which is what we're all experiencing. Do you realize all of the things that have ever happened and will ever happen are just about his story? He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's nothing outside of him that can bring eternal life. So we're going to go over to verse 29. Because he lays it out for us fairly clearly. 29 through 32 in chapter 7. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. Time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, though they did not weep. Those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy, as though they own, don't own anything. And those who use the world, as though they did not make full use of it. For this world, in its current form, is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. I want you to be without concerns. Do you know in my life, and maybe you've seen this too, um, concerns pile up when we own them. Right? When I own that I have to make this work, and I have to own that, and I have to be in charge of that, and I have to be the one who makes this happen, or whatever it is in your life, when you own it and say it's totally up to me, concern enters your heart. And then stress, and then anxiety, and then how is this going to work? I have to fix it. I have to make it work. And yet we're told, cast all your cares on the Lord. Submit to him. He is responsible for the end result. I am responsible for the obedience, the immediate obedience Will I obey or not? Will I comply or not? Will I follow his leading? Will I follow his word? Will I live in line with where I feel he's calling my life? If I do that, he's responsible for the end result. And even if things don't seem to be working out the way I would plan them to work out, it's still his responsibility and I trust him in it. 
If we look at Paul's life, I'm sure Paul didn't start out and say, wow, I'm going to be shipwrecked. I'm going to be bit by a snake. I'm going to be imprisoned. Uh, I'm going to be stoned almost to death. Boy, that sounds wonderful, <laughs> right? Boy, from the world standpoint, Paul went from being an established, significant person within the, the structure of his time to being a nobody, right? Not just a nobody. Uh, he was incarcerated. He was uh, in times of hunger. He was homeless. He was destitute. He was an outcast. Uh, he shows up in a town, and a riot starts for no reason. He's a troublemaker. If you look at his life from a world perspective, if you don't look at it and say how God used it in the spiritual uh, aspects of his life, you will miss it. And sometimes we look at our life and we do the same thing because our focus isn't, Lord, your will be done as on, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Today, help me to focus on you. Why? Why do we need to do this? Why is this so very important? He says it. He says for this world in its current form is what? It's passing away. Look, you can, you know, and this is where we gotta encourage people. We gotta focus this so, so clearly as a church and then individually that people see it in our lives. If you think that a good economy is the only thing that matters in life, if you think Stability, temporary stability is the only thing that matters in life. If you think the creature comforts of life and not having a lot of problems is what life is all about, you are in for a rude awakening. I'm in for a rude awakening. It's temporary. Do you realize how blessed we are that we haven't had a world war recently? <laughs> I mean, most of us weren't alive when the world war happened, the last one. Do you know, even with 9-11 and COVID, we're, we still had food. We still had shelter. Most people lived, right? If you look back on time, people had really difficult circumstances. And there are places today in the world where they live with very difficult circumstances. But we're in a unique pocket of grace. We're in a unique pocket where we can get our lives right with the Lord because this can all change very quickly. And it can get real hard and it can be real struggling and it can be real difficult. And that's why he's saying, look, don't put your hope in this temporary place. It's passing away. It's a it's a it's a jug of milk has an expiration date. And one day it's going to get real sour. Right. I have an expiration date. You have an expiration date. Everything on planet Earth as it is now has an expiration date. And if you live like it is eternal, you're living a disappointed future. Because he's saying, look, as you live out your life, focus so much on the Lord that whatever relationship you're in, whatever job you have, uh, whatever established uh, influence you've made in your, in your world, live as though you don't have it in regards to eternity. Don't rely so much on what you've accumulated in this life. Don't rely so much on your status and, and all the things you've done in this life. Always consider the eternal. Always consider the fact that you are in a temporary existence in this life. One day you're going to die and pass on to the eternal. How are you living in light of that? How am I living in light of that? I always consider this to myself as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a neighbor, as someone in the community. How am I living out my life in light of eternity? 
Do I care about my neighbor's eternity? Do I care about uh, the community's eternity? Do I care about the school over here? Do I care about those children? Do I care about those parents? Do I care about those teachers and the principals? Do I care about a school that's going to start in, a, in two weeks? And do I care that they know Christ and that they have a reason for living and guidance and purpose and meaning? Is my focus so clear on that or am I chasing the diamond? The diamond of temporary satisfaction of temporary security? Am I chasing something that's actually uh, never going to fulfill? Like only the Lord can. You see, this morning we're in a situation because things are getting darker faster than probably they ever have. Things are getting more dire quickly. And so we must uh, not hesitate in our obedience and in our following of the Holy Spirit. John 4.23 says this, But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Our focus this morning and and my prayer is that all of us, uh, whether you're a guest today or you've been here a very long time, as we enter this place that we don't think temporarily. We don't think about what am I going to do in the next 10 years, 25 years. We're not thinking about all the distractions that life from Monday to Saturday is going to fill us with. But that at these moments, we're thinking about, I'm going to die. And hopefully because of Christ in my life, I know that I'm saved. Hopefully today you're there. You can know for certain. But that you think about that today. And you consider your eternal destiny. And then we consider what we're going to do here in a moment. The only reason my eternity is set and I can know for certain where I'm going when I die is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The only reason any of us can know this is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so my, my question for us is, do we FOMO on truly worshiping God together today? Are we fearing at all that we might miss out on the good things God has for us? Or the good things God wants us to do for him. Because truly the greatest things we can do is serve God. That we can love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. The greatest things for us to do in life is to love God and to love people. Am I missing out on that because of selfishness? Am I missing out on that because I'm, I'm only seeking things that are about me? Or have I committed my ways to the Lord? Have you committed your ways? Have we committed our ways as a church? So here's some questions to think about. Is there anything more important to you than worshiping God today with your life? Is there anything more important to you than worshiping God? Do you enjoy worshiping God? Or is it a responsibility and a duty? If possible, will you seek new ways to worship God? Will you say, God, tell me how to worship you. Show me how to worship you. I want to focus so much on you that I'm not distracted by this world. What are you most worried about missing out on? What are you specifically most worried about missing out on? I know for some of you, And for me too, 
We all learn differently. Some of us are auditory learners and we learn by listening. Some of us learn nothing by listening, right? It's in ear, one ear out the other. Uh, some of us are visual. We need something visual and it helps us to learn. Some of us have to actually do the thing and then we understand it, right? Some of us have to teach it so that we can truly understand it. We all have different ways of learning. Who created that? Who created that? God created that. And he has a purpose for that. And he has a desire for that. That means not all of us are going to feel the same way about certain aspects of worship. Because he wires us. He's purposely wired you. And I think one of the things people have missed out on church is they think there's just this one little way. And if you don't do it this one little way, then you're wrong. And because... The person may not connect to that. They never really get excited about God. Have you ever been excited about your faith? Have you ever been excited about Jesus? You know, he wired you in a way to be excited about it. And so what I'm going to share with you really quickly is a book the deacons and I read together. And it's just nine different ways to think about worship. Because if we want to keep our focus on God and we want to make sure he's the most important, that the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God is leading us and guiding us. If this is the thing we're to focus on, uh, we could use some help in that. And so I want to give you just really quickly nine things that might help you think differently about this idea of worshiping God, focusing on God in new ways. Things that people do all over the world that draw them closer to God. Number one, in this book by... Uh, Gary Thomas, nine way, uh, it's called Sacred Pathways, Nine Ways of Worshiping God. The first he shares about is called The Naturalist. How many of you feel alive in the spirit, feel closest to God walking on the beach, walking in the woods, just being in nature? When you're in nature, you're, you feel God's presence so strong and you feel an urge to worship him. You can't help but worship him when you look at the beauty of his creation. Now, that's not everybody. We're not all wired that way. But there are some of us, and there may be you today, that you've never been encouraged to once a week go out and take a walk and just worship God on that walk. To seek God on the beach, to seek God on the path, to seek God as you walk around your neighborhood and enjoy fresh air and listen to the noises, listen to the sounds around you. Maybe this is something that will stir within you so you can focus more on what God has in your life. Now, obviously, the downside of this is, and I've met people, they say, well, you know, the, the nature is my church. No, we're to gather. We're still to have church, to gather together. But this gives energy. It's like the fuel that makes you excited about what God's doing in your life. And it gives you the, the momentum to move forward and, and gives you the oomph that sometimes we need that God is giving us and he wants us to have. And so maybe that's you today. The second is the sensate, worshiping using your senses. You know, some churches, uh, there's visual and there's, uh, there's things you can smell and touch and, and all because God made our senses. He wants us to worship him. Have you ever thought about the fact that God wants us to worship him with our senses? Did he create our senses to neglect his worship? Did he say, I want you to only worship me through singing and being in a room and listening to a sermon? Is that what he said? That's the only way you can do it. Or did he create these amazing bodies for us to live in that have all these beautiful gifts of seeing, of smelling, of hearing, of touching, that God desires us to worship him? And maybe this week, just even creating something and saying, I'm creating this with the desire of knowing God better. And God, you made my hands to do this. and You made my eyes to do this. 
and the smell and, and what I hear. All of these things matter because they're for your glory and for your praise. Have you ever worshiped God that way? Has anyone asked you, what are you doing? I'm worshiping God. What do you mean you're worshiping God? He gave me all this stuff. And I'm saying thank you. You're an awesome God. To create an eye the way it's created. Have you ever studied the eye or the ear or the nose? Have you studied how your senses work or touch? These are all magnificent truths that we can worship God with. Number three, traditionalist. You know, some of you were raised in a church and you sang songs similar to we sing and, and had a structure. So listen, and when you do this, it stirs your heart for the Lord. It stirs your heart to want to worship him and follow him and be obedient and, and align with him. And, and the traditions were established on purpose that we would love God more. Every time we sing that song, it stirs your heart to a time and a place. It stirs your heart to love God even more, to love others because of what he's done for you. These are positive things that we reinforce when we gather together that this loving God that showed up to you when you were a teenager is still the same God today. The same God that was there in your 20s and 30s is still the same God today. And he's still working the same way. And you can love him even more today. But what we don't want to do is start worshiping the traditions and make them more important than the fact that God has called us by name. He has saved us and desires us to seek him in new and fresh ways. There's the aesthetic. Some of us need quiet. How many of you enjoy being alone in the quiet? How many of you hate being alone in the quiet, right? This is where I'm saying we're all different in this. But some of us, we just need to set aside an hour every week where there's no distraction. And we just listen to God and say, God, speak to me. Or maybe even every day. Whatever the Lord leads you. See, this is all God calling us to love him more. This is a relationship where he says, invest in me. Put a look more into this relationship. And maybe just quiet listening to God, praying in a way where I don't talk, but I listen to the Spirit of God as he talks to me, as I read his word and allow it to saturate my heart. The activist. Some, of, uh, some people, they feel most alive in their faith when they're standing up for the principles of God's word. And they want to stand on the corner and say, Jesus is the way, and here's what God's word says about our government and our politics and all these things. And they feel most alive when they do that. Did God create that or not? Did God give us these passions? Or are these just worldly passions? I believe that God gives us righteous indignation that we're to do in love. But for some people, they feel the most like they're being used by God when they can stand up for truth. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're told not to do that. If you do that in love because you ultimately want the best for everyone, that is a form of worship. And it's a form that people, uh, if you allow God to use you, you can make an influence in a culture where people don't know what God says and what his truths are. I think the next one is a large area for many of us, the caregiver. You worship by caring for others. Some of you feel the most connected to God, the most used by God when you're helping someone that cannot help themselves. Your form of worship, worshiping God, is by loving someone who cannot take care of themselves or has a need that only you can take care of or a need that they've asked for you to help with. A caregiver is a form of worship. 
Maybe just instead of always thinking, well, some of us, it, becomes, it can be a burden or we can think of it the wrong way. If we can recondition our thinking, this is a form of worship. I'm worshiping God by loving this person. I'm loving God by taking care of this person. I am being a caregiver in the name of Christ for his glory and for his worship. And, and if you miss it, that's why God put it in your life. Don't miss out on these things. They're really powerful when you unlock them. Number seven, the enthusiast. A lot of churches today are going to have loud music and they're going to have a lot of energy and there's going to be a smoke machine and a light machine and it's just going to be so loud. And you say, this place is too loud. And people are going to jump around and they're going to be excited. You know where else? If you go to Africa right now, uh, they dance for half the service. They are full of energy and they feel the most worshipful when they are doing those things. And who gave them that? God or Satan? If God gave it, who am I to tell you this is not the right way to worship God? Satan can't own all the energy. He's not allowed. God created your heart. He created rhythm. He created passion. He created desire. And he wants you to use it for his glory. And when the enemy kind of owns all the territory, it's really sad. When we've given him over, everything says, oh, well, that's just the Satan's work. No. The Lord God created us to worship him. And he's looking for true worshipers. And some people need that passion. They need that energy. And that is how God has wired them to worship. And we should encourage them. You can, obviously, that can be done way out of bounds. I totally agree. But true worship done within the guidelines that the Holy Spirit gives through his word, and Paul lays them down, I think that there is room for energy within worship of God. And then finally, intellect. Some people are very logical. They want to know the why and the how. Tell me how God created. Who created God? Who created the Bible? Is the Bible authentic? Is it trustworthy? And the more they search God out, the more they seek those truths, the more the worship grows their spirit. And maybe that's you today. I bring this up only so that everyone here knows that there are so many beautiful ways to seek God in worship. Amen. There are so many ways that God calls you to say, come, follow me. And when we limit him and say, well, I just don't get, that doesn't do it for me or that's not my thing, that's okay. We need to be connected to each other. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. I will give you a joy that passes all understanding. I will give you a purpose and a meaning for your life. So this morning, as we've looked at the concept of not missing out on what God has for us, what is God saying to you? What can you apply to your life today so that you can seek him more and make him your full focus in your life?